You are listening to the Hybrid Hospitality Podcast. If you're interested in the trends that are transforming hospitality and want to explore what the future of the industry might look like, then you're in the right place. This podcast is brought to you by Stay the Night, a creative marketing agency working with hospitality businesses around the world who are changing the way people stay, work and play. Hi, I'm Rosie Willen, co-founder of Stay the Night, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Eric Jafari, Chief Development Officer and Creative Director at Eden. Eric heads up Eden's pan-European real estate development platform and leads on the broad creative direction of its brands. He was one of the original co-founders of Lock, an innovative brand that blends the traditional apart hotel format with the design, F&B and programming of a boutique lifestyle hotel. In this episode, we talk about Locke's rapid expansion plans, learn how Eden have created a behind-the-scenes culture that encourages innovation, and hear what Eric believes are the biggest opportunities for hotels in a post-COVID world. I think to start with, obviously we last spoke in November, and so can you just tell me how things are at Eden? I saw that you were hiring for some new positions. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's been busy. We are very fortunate because, you know, although we're not at the 95% plus occupancy that we were pre-COVID, occupancy levels are currently on average about uh, 60%, 65%, which is quite remarkable considering uh, the fact that we opened four hotels in the middle of COVID. Yeah. Uh, you know, one uh, in March, which was right in the middle of the pandemic, uh, one in August, and then another two in December of all time. So it's fairly trying period. But, you know, so I'm, I'm not complaining with respect to occupancy. I'm, I'm actually quite grateful that we've been provided an opportunity to see how resilient the model is. Yeah. And uh, the other reason for why we've been busy is that as of recent, we're seeing a lot of potential opportunities, you know, hotels that have the possibility of us being able to convert into a kind of an Eden property, which will be interesting to see. You're busy then. <laughs> that sounds like yeah, a busy time. Yeah. yeah. And so when we interviewed you for our white paper, I remember you saying the quote that I liked was that the concepts of tomorrow, are the concepts that really understand the inner workings of their tribe. And so can you tell me how you do that at Eden? Like how do you tap into those markets that that kind of need your product? It's a very good question. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, part of the challenge with big brands is that the decision maker and the consumer are different. And the moment that the individual who decides the music, the the artwork, the food and beverage offering isn't the consumer, that's the moment in time where there's going to be a big gap. It's just making sure that the decision makers and the consumers are one. In our case, as it relates to Locke, it just so happens that myself, uh, Kelly, Jordan, Stephen McCall, uh, we're the type of people that would stay at a Locke. The restaurants that we partner with, in a lot of cases, just happen to be restaurants that we ate at before, we were passionate about, and we begged them to partner with us. The Dairy was one of my favorite restaurants for you know three, four years running. And so when the opportunity presented itself to move the Dairy to to Bermondsey, he was excited about it. And so were we. Yeah. With respect to coffee, so we partnered with James Wise, who was 2017 coffee master. And part of that was because a lot of us tend to be 
uh, passionate about coffee. And same with the gym. I mean, I, I think there's nothing more frustrating than walking into the, what, what says a gym and you see three treadmills and nothing else. And I think what people fail to understand is that if you're the type of person that will go to the gym when you're on vacation, it's highly likely that you're, you're quite passionate about wellness and you're probably doing more than just running on a treadmill. And so you know, we wanted a gym that could help facilitate yoga classes, CrossFit, muscle training. It's really just scratching your own itch. That's all it is. And, I, and I've, I've spoken to everyone about this here. I said, listen, the moment that I, I stop becoming the consumer, you guys need to ban me from making any decisions as it relates to uh, the product. Yeah. No, that's interesting that you say that because it's the same. So with Stay the Night, one of our big advantages, I think, that we'll say to clients is we tend to work with clients where we'd be the target consumer. So it's very easy to market something that you already like love and understand kind of the need for that. And so talking about Lock specifically, can you tell me about kind of the projects in the pipeline at the moment that you're working on? Yeah, it's busy. So we're in the next two months, we're opening uh, one in Dalston. Uh, so it's going to be called Kings and Lock. Uh, it's approximately 130 rooms. We're the only hotel to have a gin distillery and a microbrewery on site. So we've partnered with Labab for that, for the food, who's one of my favorite F&B concepts here in London. Another one in Dublin, which is called Zanzibar Lock. So it was, Zanzibar was a nightclub for two decades running. It was actually the most popular nightclub in Ireland. So if you get in a taxi anywhere in Ireland, you say, take me to Zanzibar, they'll tell you a story, a very inappropriate story of something they did at the nightclub. We're very excited about that. We've partnered with a group called Nola Clan, who are have some amazing concepts in Ireland. So they're going to be operating the food and beverage at, uh, at Zanzibar, and hopefully they'll restore it back to its former debaucherous glory. <laughs> uh, after that, we've got, we're opening Schwanlock. Uh, which is a 143-room lock in Munich. And so there we've partnered with a group who own a high bar, which is a really exciting uh, cocktail bar where they make their own cocktails and herbs from scratch. So that's in the center of Munich. And then after that, we open Wunderlock, which is in July. It's a 360-unit project, you know, 10 minutes from the center, but you feel like you're in kind of the great outdoors. We partnered with a really exciting Michelin-starred chef there. We're going to do an urban farm. You're only 10 minutes from the center, but you feel like you're in the great outdoors. An urban farm, there's an outdoor pool, there's big wellness program, a rooftop bar, co-working, event space. Then there's Beckett Lock, which is in Dublin, which is a 240-unit project next to the arena. And then after that, Buckle Street Studios. Uh, which is in Allgate, which will have more of a music concept attached to it. And then Cambridge, uh, we've got a Turing Lock, which is a 330-unit lock at a Hyatt-centric. So that's this year. And then just right off the heels of that, we've got uh, Eastside Lock at Eastside Gallery, which is in Berlin, which opens Q1 next year. And then we've got Cartier Circle, which is in Woodwharf, Canary Wharf. And we've got one in Lisbon, which I'm really excited about which is right in the center of Lisbon, which is a conversion of a convent. And there's a big music partnership there, uh, which we're doing. And then there's um, Karsten Lock, which is in Copenhagen. And then hopefully we're working on something in Helsinki. Knock on wood, we'll be able to announce Helsinki in a few months. That's so exciting. So, 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 any time to sleep over the next two years. 
<laughs> just I, uh, the funny thing is I sleep, I sleep well. I, <laughs> I, I love what we do. So it's not really work. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny. My father, I think I mentioned this before when we last spoke, my father was the lead architect for Disney. And so he was incredibly talented, but uh, as kids, I would always say, Hey, can we go to Disney? And he was like, no, I, that's work. I, I don't want to go. Yeah. It's horrible. I want to decompress from work. And I've always had the opposite. I want to spend every living moment in our, in our spaces because I love the food. I love the design, the music is great. And that, unfortunately it's not me who picks the music. It's not me who cooks. Uh, so, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how it works. But I think that's when you can tell you really aligned with what you're doing. Definitely. And so I've visited a couple of different lock sites here in London myself. And I think people will have realized just from you talking through the different projects and the different elements that I think you clearly have a great balance between the standardization of the brand and the personalization of each site. Um, so each site feels unique, but you know that you're in a lock property. And how do you achieve that from the concept? When a, a hotelier comes to London, uh, what they'll typically do is they would go to Soho House or they'd go to Annabelle's and, and they'll say, okay, that's what I want. So they'll go to Annabelle's and hire Martin Brzezinski, pay a lot of money or go to Soho House and hire Michaelis Boyd. And unfortunately, what tends to happen is you end up get, getting delivered a poor version of you know, the product that you, you wanted because you may not have the, the budget of an Annabelle's or, or Soho House. Our approach is actually the opposite. I think the analogy, I tell everyone the same story, that back in the 1880s, when people used to go to Provence in the south of France, artists would go there. They were valued on how well they captured uh, Provence through their through their artwork. And so a lot of times it was the closer it was to a photo, the the better it was and the, and the more um, celebrated the artist was. And so this 22-year-old from, from Holland comes along and instead of painting what it looks like, he paints how it makes, what resonates with him, the textures that connect with them, the colors that stick out. It's Provence through his eyes. And the, the heartbreaking part of, the, part of that story is that it wasn't until such time that he had passed that that artwork was actually shared with the rest of the world. And that artist was Van Gogh. And so I love that story because it took someone who wasn't from Provence to really depict Provence through such a special lens. And, and for re the reason for why that resonated with me, you know, I, I work in one of the most beautiful parts of the world. I work in Soho. And so, and yet I'm, often quite blind to what makes this place so special. You know, when you work in a place, you're so consumed with going to and from work with all of your responsibilities that it's it's hard sometimes to remember what makes a place so special. It takes a foreigner, it takes someone who's not from that place to walk the streets and really point out the the senses that connect with you from from smell to touch to music to sound. And so I like doing the same thing on two fronts. One is I like taking designers who aren't from a city, having them walk the streets of the city, most specifically that neighborhood, and then pointing out to me, listen, I want you to interpret this location through your eyes. What is it that connects with you on a on kind of a personal level? And the other thing that we love doing is we love working with designers that have never done a hotel before. I love working with designers who've, uh, perhaps championed an aesthetic within the F&B space mm -hmm. and having our team kind of walk through the process of what is it like to create 
a home that fits within 25 square meters. And, and the reason for why it works is because the hotel designers tend to be encumbered with the way that hoteliers do things. So everything revolves around the bed. The bed is in the middle of the room. And then really how unique and beautiful a hotel room is, is defined by the headboard, the nightstand, maybe some form of pendant lighting. And that's really how everyone differentiates whether a room is beautiful or not. Whereas we sit down with the designer and we say, listen, you haven't done a hotel before? That's great. Uh, We want you to champion the living space. Yeah, you can, the, the bed area should be pretty, but really try to create some distance between the, where you sleep and where you live. What should the sofa look like? What should the kitchen look like? Where would you work? What would you eat? And, and how these designers interpret this, in addition to integrating it with how the area makes them feel, you end up with some really special experience. And that's despite the fact that our budgets are really lean. Yeah. I think it's something about like having that fresh perspective is something like as we're hiring as well, we we kind of don't always hire people with just hospitality marketing backgrounds. It's the same thing because we try and look at retail at what people are doing in, in fashion and stuff. Because I think when you're so wrapped up in the industry, you can get kind of tunnel vision about it. So bringing in those fresh perspectives definitely, definitely works. And so I want to talk a little bit kind of on that note about the future of work because it's something that there's a lot of conversations and debates happening around right now about how work's going to look after the pandemic. And I suppose if more people opt for a work on the move lifestyle, what opportunities do you think that presents for the hospitality industry? There are two observations of what I want to call kind of an evolving demographic. One is, you know, families with kids have kind of because COVID and the lockdowns have extended for as long as they have, they're a lot more sensitive to lack of space and lack of kind of the great outdoors than maybe they would have before. So you have a lot of families with kids kind of moving further out. And in response to that, these individuals uh, who've moved you know, out an hour out to two hours out of town have also been reminded they, they still required to come to work two, three days a week. A lot of them try uh, doing the commute, the hour and a half commute each day, you know, three hours of commuting, and it can get quite painful. And so most of them are like, okay, I really need a, a pied a terre in London. And so your, your options are one of two, either A, you lease or buy a property that you're committing to, uh, an apartment, which most people can't afford to do, or B, you access what I call cut, uh, flexible living, which would be a lock type property. So this ability to tap in and tap out to something that feels like a home, have access to a gym, have access to co-working, be able to invite people to your co-working location. And so we're seeing this emergence of people coming in every week, you know, two, three days a week, and luck becoming the pied-à-terre. The other emergence is younger people who don't have kids waking up to the fact that they could technically work from anywhere. I think right now, you know, we're seeing some of these people having moved from kind of the north to London. I see. I think that over the course of the next few years, you're going to see these people move to sunnier climates. You know, in this U.S., a lot of there's been a big move to Tulum and to Miami and to Austin, Texas. Obviously, we've seen a lot of people, you know, sample Dubai. But it's it's this idea that you could technically work from anywhere. So during the winter months, why stay confined to a place that you don't need to, especially if you can find a place that feels like home, but yet has 
has all of the functionality of co-working, the gym, all of the necessities that you would have been accustomed to at home now being exported abroad. Yeah. And I've worked from a couple of your sites and I think, am I right in thinking across your sites, it's a more like, it's a casual co-working model. It's not like a membership model at the sites at the moment. Locke is very, uh, very democratic and very kind of open to everyone. We're quite resistant to any form of exclusivity for now. Okay. Uh, but who knows, that, that might change with time. I mean, if Berman specifically, the one you went to, there was a while where you couldn't find a seat. And if that continues to happen, then we might have to intervene and go, <laughs> okay, what, what do we do here? Maybe there's some form of booking system, but we're trying not to create kind of an exclusive environment yeah. or club. So community is another huge trend in topic in hospitality right now. And I think it's important to see that brands kind of go beyond the buzzword to deliver an experience that lives up to what they're claiming. So how do you facilitate that genuine connection between your guests at your sites? So, okay, I'll I'll talk about what we don't do first in my pet peeves. So um, (laughs) there there are two things. So one of my first pet peeves is when a hotel will do kind of like a, a happy hour where they'll offer really shitty um, alcohol or coffee for free, which I, I'd rather that uh, rather not taste. It's like hangover in one drink. Um, <laughs> you're surrounded with people that you have nothing in common, and 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 trying to kind of drum up the courage to say hello to someone just over free drinks. It sounds great in theory, and then you show up, and it's just really socially awkward. It becomes um, like networking. So we don't. <laughs> it becomes a bit like yeah, a networking exactly. event, and it's like yeah. Yeah, I've even had seen hotels do it where they like give name badges, and I was like, okay, shoot me now. Um, <laughs> so we don't do that. And then the the second thing that I'm very sensitive to, but I recognize that you need to start somewhere. So one of the reasons for why I was always so enamored with the lifestyle hotel movement was because you went into this lobby that you had been conditioned to believe should have been empty. And it was busy. It it felt like a music festival. And it was so exciting to walk into an Ace or a Hoxton or a Standard and, and, you know, kind of the model being turned on the side. And what I loved about it was the kind of democratic nature of taking something that was meant to be hierarchical and then opening it up to everyone. So on that note, I, I just thought it was such a huge step up from the traditional hotel model. I think one of the things that I've personally struggled with is, especially in areas that are really too cool for school, is you walk in there and it's so busy. And at times you can sometimes feel more alienated and isolated yeah. uh, leaving there than from when you got in, especially if you're traveling all by yourself. Like it's, it, yeah, I, I'm fairly outgoing, even despite the fact that I'm belligerent and outgoing, it still can be quite daunting to just walk up to someone and say, hey, where are you from? Without them thinking you're a creep or <laughs> that you're trying to hit on them, regardless of the sex. There's two things that we kind of look at. One is how do you design the space to forge chance encounters uh, through having kind of bar tops that allow you to interact with the chef or with the bartender. And even through, for example, our bathroom design, where we create these bathrooms where people have these shared basins where a guy or a girl, or, or, or it doesn't matter, are almost forced to speak with one another because they're in this space that, that compels that interaction. Yeah. So that's the first. And then the second is um, shared experiences. And I, I think you touched up on it, is, is creating enough experiences through your cultural programming 
that if you have a passion, if you have a self-interest, that you will be provided with an opportunity to share that interest with another individual that you may have previously not known. Um, and that is what, what leads to authentic kind of encounters. And so whether that be a yoga class or a running class on the wellness side of things or meditation or be some form of coffee masterclass or gin tasting or uh, even some form of TED style talk, you know, really trying to create different uh, experiences where people can, can kind of meet one another, but it done, be, be done through a shared experience as opposed to some form of kind of forced encounter. Yeah. And so I suppose you've kind of touched on wellness a little bit earlier in the conversation and it kind of links to the idea of kind of wellness programming but I think it's something that a lot of people have definitely woke up to in the last year of how important it is to put in that time for wellness and self-care so in what ways do you think hotels can incorporate that into what they offer? I think one of the issues is that when you historically when people use the word wellness there's this assumption within the hospitality space that really what you're referring to is a spa sort of kind of a spa facility and maybe some type of, of gym and that's it. Whereas from my perspective, really wellness is, is, is a, it's a community. It's a, uh, it's a way of life. And it starts with some of the basics, like making sure that your gym is the type of gym that accommodates kind of, you know, TRX kettlebells from yoga to CrossFit to, Orange Theory to some of the more evolved community-based fitness regimes, but then not, not ending there, really taking it from there and going, okay, wellness also means what is it that we eat? So you know, obviously within kind of the self-catering movement and the part hotel movement, we've got kitchens in our rooms, but it's also being able to have access to, to foods and, and recipe boxes so that you can make your own items. So there's the self-catering element. So there's the food and drink and making sure that when you go downstairs, it's not a Costa Coffee or Starbucks, but it's a third-way coffee shop. There's cold-pressed juices and kombucha and kefir um, that you have the proper uh, set of vegan options or gluten-free or dairy-free options or, and sugar-free options. And then there's you know, kind of wellness of the mind, you know, meditation and yoga, mindfulness, you know, making sure that you're partaking in courses that kind of champion all three. I think the other thing I do want to mention about wellness is the following. The assumption is that if you embrace wellness, that you can't embrace hedonism. And, and I think there's a big, I think that's a fallacy. I think many of us who do embrace wellness want some degree of balance. And my very same friends that eat really healthy during the week and meditate every day, they're the same friends that I probably have the funnest times out on a, on a Friday, Saturday night. And I think that the concepts that embrace one at the expense of the other have missed a trick. Yeah. And so it's really trying to forge an ecosystem where you have all of those well, all of those wellness facilities and opportunities available to you. But when you do go out instead of every day, once a week, that you're making it worthwhile and you're making it memorable. Yeah. So what would you pick then if a mindful like week retreat or Ibiza closing parties. <laughs> I'm just going to put I you would, on. Okay, no, no, you, everyone, everyone knows me, knows my answer. I, I'm so rigid in my day-to-day -day life. I meditate every day. I drink bone broth. I, <laughs> I track my sleep. I uh, track my glucose level um, live. My day-to-day -day life is very much rooted in wellness. So in response to that, I, I will always do the Ibiza closing parties because I've paid my dues. <laughs> there's balance. Yeah, there's room for both. So 
let's talk about innovation then for a little bit. So obviously the ability to like take risks and be more flexible has arguably never been more important than over the past year. So what are the best examples of innovation that you've seen during this period? And that can be like within hospitality outside of. So I thrive off of being exposed to and learning from uh, the innovation that is imparted by others. I'm the type of individual, if I hear about something amazing in Los Angeles or in in Caporta or in New York, I will go out of my way to fly there to, to experience it. And in doing so, I feel like my understanding of, of the sector grows. I've been deeply disappointed with the lack of innovation uh, that has transpired over the course of the last 18 months. And I think in, in part, partially because people have perceived this period as a time for pause. I recognize that there's, there's, there's a time for pause, but I also recognize that in response to this, this should lead, you know, the greatest forms of greatest forms of creativity typically comes from come from times of greatest limitation. I think with that said, the three concepts that have impressed me, one I'm impartial to, so take it with a grain of salt, and the other two I'm not. So the first two that I'm not impartial to, one of them is is Peloton, which has nothing to do with hospitality. I just think they've done a very, very, very good job in blurring the lines between the joy, euphoria, uh, and community that comes from uh, community-based wellness, such as you know, SoulCycle, and, and really being able to achieve that with the privacy and comfort of one's home. Yeah. I, I think that they're, the way they've gone about it is genius and it costs a fortune. And yet, despite the fact that it costs a fortune, for those that have done it, you, you, you'll see, I don't even like spin. I think spin's <laughs> ridiculous, but I, I got on the Peloton bike. It's one of the closest things uh, to that, you know, the euphoria that you experience at an Ibiza closing party that I've had through the wellness uh, <laughs> sector. So so I'd say Peloton's very, very well done. They, they, they've, got a, they've got very good technology. They've got a, a clever way of inducing competitiveness. It's very, very well done. The other one, the other company that I've been impressed by is Dispatch. Okay. What they did is they, they, they figured out very quickly that people still want to experience amazing dining experiences within the comfort of our home. And so what Dispatch figured out was, okay, we will approach the likes of JKS, like Jim Khanna or Trishna and some of these mission star dining experiences. And we'll work with them to be able to provide people the ability to order a Jim Khanna meal, a Trishna meal from anywhere in the UK. It used to be that you could only go to Jim Khanna if you were able to get a booking. And if you technically were living, you, know, you plan on being in London for the night, and yet now you could be three hours away, order a Gymkhana meal, and it'd be sent to the privacy of your own home. And there's the excitement associated with you know, preparing the meal. And they've, they've nailed the, the presentation, the instructions. They've made it quite seamless. I was very impressed with, with that. It's not cheap, but you've, you've now got a far wider uh, consumer base to target, yeah. which I, I think is quite clever. The third, and I say this because I'm, I'm impartial, I, I'm a shareholder co-founder, but they did a far, I came up with the idea, they did a far better job in delivering the idea that I did in its birch. When I originally came up with the idea, this vision in my mind as to what it was meant to be like, and obviously I've got a day job, so I wasn't able to deliver on that, <laughs> thankfully. And so I brought in Chris and Chris, and they ran with the vision 
And, and what they were able to create was something so much more meaningful, authentic, and exciting. I do believe they've nailed the zeitgeist of the moment, which is being within very close proximity to an urban city center and yet feeling like you're in the great outdoors, being affordable, but you know, having an urban farm on site, uh, you know, having a place that you can do co-working. I just love it. I mean, I spend every weekend. I did. I mean, when it wasn't closed, I was spending every weekend there because it was just so much fun. We've been, we've been uh, trying to visit, but then we kept getting locked down. So like, <laughs> as soon as we're out of lockdown, it's like the first place I'm going to go, definitely. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It, it's, you know, I, I miss the music festivals. And so it was the closest thing to yeah. the music festival I could get without the five-day hangover. <laughs> And just so just staying on that theme of innovation then. So how do you create a culture kind of behind the scenes at Eden that encourages innovation? It's a brilliant question. So there's a lot of companies that come up with these core values. And then the moment that you've read them off the board, you're like, this is either in the back of your mind, you think this is, this is bullshit. They just never get applied. There's three core values at Eden and it gets encouraged from, from the top down and bottom up. And the three core values are, it's the courage to be human, to question and to evolve. And there isn't a day that goes by where those three values don't get exercised by everyone. And during the times that they don't, everyone gets reminded about the importance of those core values. So what what does it mean? Being human means that you've got to recognize that we're fallible creatures and we will make mistakes. And none of us have all of the answers and there's no perfect way to do things. The the only way to, to improve is through experimentation, evaluating what went right, what went wrong, and then trying something new. Yeah. And and that takes a lot of courage because the knee jerk, most of us, what we want to do is just replicate what's worked for us in the past, as opposed to asking the question of, is there a way to do it better? And I think that ties into the second thing, which is questioning. It doesn't matter how high up you are here or what your role is. You have to have the right to question and challenge. And that frequently means even someone like myself being asked by an analyst or by a house host, why did we do it this way? You know, is there a better way to do it? The knee-jerk response, no matter how successful you are, we're all insecure. And, and like the higher likelihood is the higher up you are, the more insecure you are. And, and the only reason for why someone like myself works as hard as we do is because we're deeply insecure at our core. And so when someone asks you a question, why did you do it that way? First you want to do is you want to self-edify, you want to defend your position. This is the best way. And so it's a constant effort day in and day out to look at them and go, that's a good question. Let's look at this together. Sometimes I don't do that. And when I don't, I need them to call me on my insecurity and remind me that what I'm doing is is idiotic. It's a constant debate because it takes a lot of work to to openly question a superior that maybe historically you've been conditioned from a very early age. Don't question your teacher. Don't question your parents. Just do what they say. And then all of a sudden you you enter a company, like, no, question me. Like, oh, he just really is just saying that. I'm like, no, really, I haven't figured it out. Like, yeah, my music choices at Locke might suck. I think they're good. They might suck. Tell me they suck. Uh, so there's a lot of trial and error. And, and that's part of the reason for why every lock is different. Because yeah. the only way we will be able to evolve is we continue experimenting and 
kind of figuring out, oh, okay, that worked there. That didn't work there. Yeah. And so, um, that in our cores are the only reason for why creativity happens here is because we're willing to make mistakes and we're willing to learn from those mistakes. Yeah. And it's definitely needed in, in creativity. Like I'm a recovering perfectionist, I think I can say. And I think you need to have that, that freedom to, to try things. And if you get stuck into rigid, a way of doing things with anything creative, it kind of kills it. Just to look forward to the future then. So as things begin to open up, because now we have here in the UK, at least a kind of date, what do you think are the biggest opportunities for hotels? I think we're about to enter a very interesting era. Here's what I mean by this. So if you think about what we what has happened over the course of the last 12 months, two things have happened. Have happened. For the majority of us who've been confined to our homes, we've had to convert what we used to only use as a place to sleep into an enjoyable functional place to sleep eat work play and so in response to that many of us have had to improve our culinary skills we've had to turn perhaps what was once just a bedroom into somewhere that's a little bit more enjoyable. So we've probably each invested a little bit more money in vegetation. We've probably spent more money on artwork, on furniture. Maybe we've upgraded our homes. And so what does that mean? That that means that someone has spent the amount of money and time and effort to make their home more enjoyable. It does mean that when they leave their home to go eat out, they want the dining experience to be more memorable, more enjoyable than what they would have had at home. Mm. They want the hospitality experience to be more aspirational uh, and memorable than the one they've created at home. I think, what does that mean? That, that means we're going to be probably a lot more selective in the dining experiences that that we partake in. And we want it to be a lot more meaningful and, and where we stay. I think just having a, a place to put your head at night isn't enough anymore. And, and I would venture to say that it, we, we evolved from a pretty place to put your head at night that had good food. That would have been kind of the pinnacle experiences. I would even question whether that's enough anymore. People have a lot of making up to do. When we go out, I think a lot of us are going to want our time away from home to be quite epic. I think a lot of us feel like we've paid our dues. And if we're going to leave the house, it better be memorable. And I, I think part of what drives that as well is the following. I think that when we did go out, when things did open up, they didn't open up fully. When we did go out, it didn't live up to the image that I had played in my head. And I think in response to that, there's a lot of pent up frustration. So, so what does that mean for hospitality? I think the hospitality concepts that understand the consumer and really get at their core, what the consumer wants, I think we'll be able to tap into a massive, uh, an unprecedented demand that it's never, that probably has never been there. And I think people, yeah, people may travel less frequently, but I think people are going likely to stay a lot longer away yeah. because now they can work away from home. I just think the game is going to change. I think the big brands have been able to rely on big corporate demand. Yeah. You know, kind of one, two night stays from big corporate accounts. I think a lot of hotel owners didn't, we just haven't seen any benefit from those drivers. Yeah. So 
I think the hoteliers that are willing to experiment, try new things, and kind of listen to the consumers, I think that could foster in a whole new era of creativity that we just uh, haven't seen. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. People are frustrated and I think just are going to be a lot more intentional as well about how they spend their time outside of outside of the home. I know the conversations I'm having, it's like things that you would have put on the back burner that you are you going to do it one day. It's like people are wanting to get out and do it. So just to round things off then, I listened to the podcast you did recently with BCG and you touched on this here where you mentioned that you rarely eat at the same restaurant twice. So where is the place you're most looking forward to revisiting after lockdown lift? I'm very excited for Wunderlock to open just because I, I do love the whole premise of kind of urban farming. You know, seeing a chef walk out, grab the herbs, prepare the meal in front of you, kind of the whole chef's table thing. I, 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 and I'm a massive fan of the chef uh, there. Um, he's spectacular. So I, I am excited to do that. But then again, just anything that allows me, uh, I'll probably be excited about eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> in, a, in a plane, to be honest with you, just to be on a plane. Yeah, this conversation's giving me mad wanderlust now. Just speaking about all the different <laughs> diets and about birds. But thanks so much for joining me today. That's been great. And I'm looking forward to visiting a few of those places that you mentioned for sure. I'll let you know as each one opens. You're more than welcome. Just uh, I'll give you the opening schedule and then uh, <laughs> hopefully there won't be too many restrictions on us being able to visit. Great. I'll look out for that. Thank you. For those listening who want to find out more about Lock, you can visit their website at www.lockliving.com. And if you want to learn more about Eden, visit www.findineden.com. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Hybrid Hospitality Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe if you'd like to be the first to hear about new episodes. We'd love it if you could leave a rating. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so. Just search Stay the Night on LinkedIn or head to at Stay the Night Co over on Instagram. For more information about what we do, visit www.staythenight.net. Until next time, thanks for listening.